Hey y'all, this is May. Now I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. This season, I'll be discussing murders from the year 1970 through 1979. Today's story is of a female murderer from 1977. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to Texas true crime. In 1977, New York City had a blackout that lasted 25 hours. This electricity blackout brought about looting, vandalism, and arson. 1,616 stores were damaged in the looting and rioting. 4,500 looters were arrested, and 550 police officers were injured during the civil disorder. That same year, Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, died at the age of 42. Another thing that happened in 1977 was a mother-son murder team taking out a respected military man. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. Shh! Stop what you are doing and listen closely. I have a secret to tell you but you can't tell anyone. Did hearing that make you a little excited or have feelings of stress? What actually happens when you must keep a secret? What does this do to you physically and emotionally? First, let's go back to basics. A secret is any piece of information that is intentionally hidden from someone else. There are several different kinds of secrets. One, a person gains a strategic advantage from having information that other people don't have. Two, the information would have negative consequences for the secret holder if it were more widely known. Or three, the information would have negative consequences for other individuals if they found out about it. Throughout my research into the effects of keeping secrets can have on someone, I came across some studies that were conducted around 2016. According to psychologist Art Markman, our minds have a limited capacity to process information, and secret keeping requires some mental multitasking. He stated further that there can also be a temptation to get a reaction from someone by telling them about something you know and they don't. It's the same impulse you would get when seeing a movie on opening night and then posting to social media how it was the best movie out this last year. Like for me, it was Love and Monsters, an amazing movie starring Dylan O'Brien. Seriously, so good, go watch it. Alright, back to the psychologist, who explains, That's the dual pincer difficulty of keeping a secret. Doing so unburdens your mind from having to keep track of what other people know and don't know and gives you the oh-so-delightful social reward of surprising others, for better or worse. A paper published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology 
revealed that the average person is keeping 13 secrets right now. And from that, five are secrets they have never told to anyone. These results came about from their research over 10 different studies that involved over 13,000 secrets. The researchers asked participants if they were keeping any of 38 different common categories of secrets, which ranged from infidelity to financial secrets to secret hobbies. The most common secrets that people shared with no one were extra-relational thoughts, thinking something romantic or sexual about someone other than your partner, romantic desire, sexual behavior, and lies. Most research up until this point focused on the concealment of secrets, people interacting in a lab with one person trying to keep something from the other. But in the studies I just mentioned, it was observed that the actual act of hiding, the moment a person makes up a lie or changes the subject, or simply omits certain information from a conversation, proved to be only a minor part of the experience of having a secret. Instead, what seems to affect people much more is how often they think about the secret. A professor at Columbia Business School, Michael Slepian, who is the lead author on this paper, stated, We actually don't encounter many situations where we have to hide our secrets relative to all the times a secret will just come into our thoughts and intrude upon our thinking. Further explaining, People have this curious way of talking about secrets as laying them down or unburdening them. We found that when people were thinking about their secrets, they actually acted as if they were burdened by physical weight. It seems to have this powerful effect even when they're not hiding a secret in the moment. Earlier research on secrecy linked one to a lower well-being, During the new research, another reason, more specific to secrecy, came about that. Thinking of secrets means thinking of things you aren't being open and honest about in your relationships, which makes people feel less authentic. In these new studies, the researchers never found that concealing secrets lowered well-being. Only thinking about them did, with Professor Slepian determining The bad news is that even when you don't have to hide your secret, you might still frequently think about it to the detriment of your well-being. This leads us to the case we are going to discuss today, the murder of Chester Garrett. Major Chester Garrett was born on July 19, 1941, in St. Thomas, Virgin Islands and raised in Puerto Rico. He graduated in 1958 from Antilles High School, U.S. Naval Station, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and was a star baseball player at his school. He was scouted by 15 major league clubs and signed with the Chicago Cubs. Pitched for them for one year, but suffered an injury, which pushed him to leave professional baseball and pursue a career in the military, starting in 1960, as an enlisted infantryman. At the age of 23, Chester Garrett married Elizabeth Floyd, 25, on September 7, 1963, and adopted her five-year-old son, Roger. After completing officer candidate school in 1963, 
Garrett served in the 187th Infantry Regiment at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, from 1963 to 1964, as a rifle platoon leader and mortar platoon leader. He then completed the Special Forces Officer Course in April 1965 and was later selected as the recipient of the Brig General William O. Darby Memorial Award as the Distinguished Graduate in Ranger Class 9-70, and his son, Patrick, was also born in 1965. He then spent four tours in Vietnam. During this time, he became the commanding officer of the Green Beret Special Forces Camp at Bu Dop, South Vietnam. On January 14, 1967, Captain Garrett led an operation against the Vietnam Congress, which resulted in 200 enemy fatalities also saving the life of a fellow soldier and was recommended for special awards for his bravery. By the time Garrett was 28 years old, he had been decorated 10 times for his service in South Vietnam from June 1966 through August 1967. These awards included the Silver Star, the Bronze Star, Army Commendation Medal, Vietnamese Honor Medal, Soldier's Medal, Vietnamese Gallantry Cross, Purple Heart with Cluster, Air Medal, and Vietnam Service Medal. In 1968, Garrett was awarded the nation's second highest award, the Distinguished Service Cross at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, for extraordinary heroism in Vietnam. Captain Garrett distinguished himself by exceptionally valorous actions on February 3, 1967, while serving as Special Forces Advisor to a Vietnamese strike force on a search-and-destroy mission near the Cambodian border. Early in the morning, his unit was savagely attacked and pinned down by a North Vietnamese battalion firing machine guns, mortars, and small arms. Completely disregarding his own safety, Captain Garrett dashed to the point of heaviest fighting to assess the situation and coordinate the defenses. He saw an enemy position manned by four hostile soldiers placing heavy fire on his men and charged through a hail of bullets, killing the insurgents with accurate hand grenades and rifle fire. He quickly established a hasty perimeter and moved back to bring reinforcements to the forward positions. His Vietnamese counterpart was killed by the intense barrage, and the men began to withdraw. But he stood up in the midst of the raging firefight and rallied his men to fight furiously against the determined attackers. Seeing two men fighting against a numerically superior element, he dashed to their side and helped kill 10 enemy soldiers within 10 meters of his position. Supporting aircraft were unable to pinpoint his location in the dense jungle, so he moved into the open to direct them with a handheld smoke grenade. Under cover of artillery and airstrikes, he led a withdrawal to a landing zone and personally carried a wounded comrade more than 600 meters on his back. Again, disregarding the savage fire, he led a carrying party back to the battle site and recovered all friendly casualties before leaving the area. Major Garrett also completed his Bachelor's in Business Administration from the University of Nebraska in 1969. 
Fast forward to 1977. Chester Garrett was 35 and the executive officer for the Student Battalion, the School Brigade, Air Defense School for the U.S. Army at Fort Bliss, Texas. He also coached the basketball and baseball team at Fort Bliss. In his personal life, his stepson, Roger, was 18, and his son, Patrick, was 12. And unfortunately, he had recently separated from his 37-year-old wife, Lisbeth, and was dating a new woman. When Lisbeth learned of this new relationship, she became bitter and wanted revenge, and she used her son to achieve it. At this time, Lisbeth, 18-year-old Roger, and 12-year-old Patrick were living in the family home in El Paso, and Chester had moved into the bachelor officer's quarters at Fort Bliss. On the evening of January 3, 1977, a Monday night, Patrick thought it was weird when his mom asked him if he wanted to go to a movie, being a school night and all. But he wasn't going to pass up this chance to have some fun with his friend, Buddy Larson and stay up late on a weeknight when normally he had to be in bed by 8.30 or 9 p.m. Lisbeth dropped the boys off at the movies and said she would be back to pick them up around 9.30. But 9.30 came and went, and Lisbeth still hadn't shown up to retrieve the boys. They decided to call Mrs. Larson, and she came to get the boys and dropped Patrick off at his home. The house was completely dark, and after Patrick knocked several times with no answer, he walked down the street to the Larson's home to use their phone. He called his house, but got no answer, and stayed at his friend's house until he saw his front porch light turn on, and then returned home. Knocked on the door, and his brother Roger answered. At this time, Patrick noticed that besides the porch light, all the other lights in the home were off but he had no option to think anything more as Roger guided Patrick straight to his room and was told to go to bed as it was a school night. The next morning, Patrick woke up to Roger standing in his doorway with a bowl of cereal, which he made him eat in his bedroom. And even though Patrick's normal routine before school was to take a shower, Roger wouldn't let him and made him to go to school without showering. When Roger picked him up from school, Patrick was told there had been an accident and that their father was dead. The body of Chester Garrett was found on the morning of July 4th, about 8 a.m. by a truck driver. The truck driver noticed a Volkswagen parked about 100 yards in the desert west of Avenue of the Americas. When he went to inspect the car, he found the body of Garrett, laying in the back seat of the car wearing a tracksuit, and the whole back seat was covered in blood. Investigators who were called to the scene noticed several footprints and another set of car tracks in the area, but said there didn't appear to be any signs of a struggle. This led them to believe Garrett had not been killed at the site. His body was found. Captain Max Stout stated, There is a chance he could have been killed someplace else. 
but right now we just don't have enough to know where. From what we've learned, the man was real tough, a special forces type, almost what you'd call a superman. Whoever got him must have been mighty tough too, and probably more than one, and probably took him by surprise. What they did know, that was sometime between 8 and 9 p.m. Monday, Garrett left his quarters at Fort Bliss, nodded hello to an acquaintance wearing his usual sweatsuit that his friends referred to as his after-five attire, and drove away. The condition of his living quarters indicated that he had left in a hurry but intended to return, and that since his wallet had not been taken, robbery was ruled out as a motive. The medical examiner found that Chester had died of blunt force trauma to the head and multiple stab wounds to the body. Just a few days after his death, theories started surfacing as police had no new leads. One theory was that Garrett was murdered by a stranded motorist who had been seen earlier that same evening trying to flag down vehicles near the murder scene. Others theorized a gang overpowered the soldier and then took his body to another location. But the police? They had their own theory about the murder. That it was someone in the Garrett family. Their suspicion started the day Chester's body was found. At around 3 p.m. on January 4th, Glenn Hall, who worked at Fort Bliss, went to the Garrett home to notify the family. Lisbeth and Roger were present when he delivered the news. While there, Hall noticed something he found strange. The mother and son were wearing matching bathrobes at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He also told the other investigators that their reaction to the news was fairly stoic, and that because Chester and Lisbeth's relationship was bitter at the time, all assumed Lisbeth to be a very likely suspect for the murder. Further evidence of her guilt came when she would not consent to a search of the family home. She finally agreed to let them search the residence on January 13th. The investigators observed a large chalky stain on the driveway coming underneath the garage door and from inside of the garage. And it appeared as though something had been washed out of the garage. Inside of the garage, they found a bottle of muriatic acid and that the left side of the garage appeared to have been recently cleaned because it was still wet. There also appeared to be blood splatter on the garage wall. On that same day, Lisbeth, Roger, and Lisbeth's brother were called to testify before a grand jury to help cast light on the murder investigation. But no arrests were expected at this time. During Roger's testimony before the grand jury, he admitted to seeing his dad at the Garrett home on the evening of January 3, 1977 and stated Patrick was not there because they had dropped him off at the theater. His parents spoke privately while he shot the basketball outside. He then witnessed his parents walk out of the house and saw his dad drive away in his car that evening. When asked if he and his mom were aware that Chester was dating a woman, Roger answered yes but denied any tensions between his parents during the divorce. 
He instead insisted that his mom had accepted the situation. The grand jury no-billed Roger Garrett on January 14, 1977. This means that the grand jury concluded there was insufficient evidence to indict an accused. This outcome results in immediate dismissal of the felony charge that was filed against the defendant in the criminal complaint. And just 10 days after Chester's death, his murder became a cold case. The Garrett family started to move on with their lives. Patrick, mourning his father's death. Lisbeth, feeling she got her revenge. And Roger, struggling to keep silent about this terrible secret. In the summer of 1978, Roger was 19 when he met 16-year-old Deborah Rodriguez and became interested in dating her. But Deborah wanted to just be friends, as she was just about to enter her sophomore year of high school. In late October or early November of that year, Deborah and Roger were drinking beer alone in a park. When Roger began talking about his father, he said there was something weighing heavily on him, and he was going to tell her a deep, dark secret. Roger, who was crying and upset, said that his mother told him Chester had been beating and abusing her, and she asked him, her son, to kill him. He explained that Chester was extremely fit, so they needed the element of surprise to succeed. Roger and Lisbeth first thought about shooting Chester during his daily run, but they abandoned that plan. Instead, they decided to lure Chester to a location where he could be surprised and knocked unconscious, so he would be unable to defend himself. Continuing, Roger detailed the events of the January 3, 1977 murder of his stepfather, explaining that he hid in a linen closet or washroom until Chester's back was to him, and he then knocked his stepdad unconscious by striking him in the back of the head with a large piece of wood like a baseball bat or 2 by 4 They also stabbed him with a knife to finish the job. But Deborah couldn't recall if Roger said it was him or his mother who used the knife. The mother and son then put Chester's body in the car and drove it out to a remote desert area of El Paso. At this point, Roger stopped talking, and the pair sat in awkward silence for a few minutes. Deborah wasn't believing the story and felt Roger was just trying to get closer to her. So she asked, Well, then why are you not in jail for the murder? Roger replied, that they had been suspects, but the police did not have any evidence against them. He then detailed to Deborah how they were able to get rid of the evidence. They cleaned the blood out of the garage using chemicals and mentioned he was surprised that none of the neighbors had noticed the residue as it ran out of the garage into the street because it was a strange color. Deborah Rodriguez did not go to the police with this story. She didn't believe one of her friends could do something like what Roger described and believed he was just trying to get closer to her. 
She ended up leaving El Paso for about a year and lost contact with Roger Garrett until around 1991. I want to say a huge thank you to the El Paso Times, newspapers.com, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Please join me next week when we discuss part two of this female murderer from the year 1977. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to hit the subscribe button. I would also love for you to rate and review my podcast on iTunes, as it really does help out. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com.